Thank you very much. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll keep working our way through another book of the Bible. I've chosen the books that I've chosen to work through because of where we are in our world and in our country in various ways, but also because it's not only important to get the big picture of what is going on and, and what we need to trust God for, but also in terms of how we're to live together as a church and how we're to love people in our various relationships. And First Corinthians certainly helps us on the more micro level, you could say, whereas Daniel and Revelation help us more on the macro level. And so we want to look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 4 today. Um, just want to begin by reminding us of this uh, little simple summary of the gospel which we used with our kids as, as they were growing up. God is the supreme good. That's where it all starts is God. Man is an idol worshiper, which highlights why we need a savior and why the world is in the condition it's in. Jesus is the, the double cure. He lived the life we could never live, died the death we deserve to die. Therefore, he is the answer to our need for reconciliation with the God who is our supreme good, the only one who can satisfy our souls. And the response to that good news is to be faith and love. It's to be faith, which is trust in the promises, and love, which is the obedience of faith. And that means love is is about trusting what God has promised us. That's the faith part. Obedience is obeying his commands in light of what he's promised us. And so love is about doing what God calls me to do because I'm trusting him for what he's promised me in Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 4 highlights for us how uh, challenging it can be to love. And that's why I've entitled this message today from this passage, Suffering Gladly in Messy Relationships. And I want to tie... Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 to actually Proverbs 14.4, which is actually at the bottom of that picture, which is a picture of a little boy or a young boy leading some oxen. And Proverbs 14.4 says, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but increase comes by the strength of an ox. And so hopefully as we go through 1 Corinthians 4, you'll see why We want to highlight that verse as we get to the end. But we want to talk about what was going on um, with Paul in this church. 1 Corinthians um, and 2 Corinthians are probably the two most personal letters, especially 2 Corinthians, that Paul writes to churches in the New Testament because he shares much of his heart and much of his life with them. And the reason why he does that is because they are the most challenging to him relationally. Uh, There are so many issues in this church. It is a church filled with true believers. So he's not dealing with a a bunch of people who just claim the name of Christ but aren't believers. He affirms that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He acknowledges that they're true believers with real giftings from the Holy Spirit. And yet they're a divided church. And they're a church that is embracing worldly wisdom And there are churches that is beginning to move away from uh, apostolic uh, teaching and uh, honoring the apostles as they should, namely him. And so he's having to do a lot of work on this relationship uh, between him and 
and them. And so it looks like he founded the church, and you can read about that in Acts 18, and then he visited the church at least two more times, it appears. But he wrote four different letters, of which we only have two. We have First and Second Corinthians, and those are the second and the fourth letters he wrote. There was a previous letter to First Corinthians, and there was a letter between First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. And so Paul made a lot of attempts to try to deal with the issues that were in the church in terms of their uh, failure to live in the way that they should, but also to address the relational issues between himself and the church. And if you read these two letters, you see that in so many ways. And so uh, as I was thinking about this, and this happens so much when I come to a passage like this and I think, what in the world am I going to talk about when it comes to 1 Corinthians 4? Well, messy relationships uh, kind of sums up, in a sense, what Paul's relationship was with the Corinthians. He says in chapter 1 that he thanks God for them. You read through the letters and you know that he loves them, cares about them deeply. But you also read where there's some real conflict, some real issues, some real suffering that he is going through because of his relationship to them. And so it's a great opportunity for us to try to see our own relationships in light of his relationship to the Corinthians and how he responded and how he addressed those issues. There's a book by Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane entitled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And they're arguing that uh, relationships in a fallen world are going to be messy because the relationships between sinners. And yet God intends our messy relationships in light of sin to actually be the channel through which we learn how to love and which we experience love and, and through which we actually grow to be like Christ and we learn how to apply the gospel in great and wonderful ways. If you look at the Bible, there are all kinds of messy relationships. And one of the great things about the Bible is that God doesn't pull any punches. He talks about godly people and he exposes their their messiness, their imperfections. And why does he do that? Because he wants us to identify with them. He wants us to see ourselves in them. He wants us to see our relationships in those relationships. So you've got... uh, the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. So you got the father, the prodigal son, and the elder brother. And those were messy relationships. Or you've got Hosea and Gomer, adultery, and a marriage relationship. That was a messy kind of relationship. You've got Moses and Aaron. Think about that. Uh, you got Moses while, excuse me, Aaron while Moses is up on the mountain, makes this golden calf and And Moses comes down and looks at Aaron, his brother, and says, what were you thinking, essentially? What's going on here? You've got Adam and Eve from the very beginning. You've got Eve encouraging Adam to sin, and afterwards Adam saying, it's her fault that I did what I did. That's a messy kind of relationship. You've got Isaac and Rebekah, in which uh, the wife deceives the husband so that her favorite son can get what he wants. You've got Jacob and Rachel, where Rachel comes to Jacob and says, give me children or I die. And he says, am I God? I can't give you children. Got Abraham and Sarah, where Abraham tells Sarah, lie about our relationship so I can be protected. Got some messy relationships in the Bible. 
And if you really think about them, you realize, okay, uh, they're not different uh, than we are or relationships that we see all around us. So I want us to think about what Paul has to say in this passage in light of these kinds of messy relationships and our own messy relationships. But let me just be clear. I'm not talking about criminally abusive relationships. That's another topic. I'm talking about everyday, run-of-the-mill, messy relationships and how God calls us to handle those difficulties that cause us real suffering. Uh, That's what messy relationships do. They cause suffering for all the people in those relationships. And how do we gladly suffer in our messy, messy relationships? I mentioned the fact that if you carefully read First and Second Corinthians, you see um, what I'm talking about in the title. For instance, in Second Corinthians 2, Paul says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And then he goes on in uh, chapter 11, he says, Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So you've got him talking about the suffering that he is experiencing in his relationship with the Corinthian believers, affliction and anguish of heart. But he's also saying, I love you. I'm committed to you. And then he'll say in chapter 12, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He says, I will gladly continue to lay down my life for you even though you cause me a lot of pain because I love you. And so gladly suffering in the midst of messy relationships is definitely a part of what Paul is talking about here and certainly an application for us. So what I'd like to do uh, briefly this morning is talk about what Paul says here in light of four kinds of suffering that we can see Um, reflected in this passage, the suffering that we might go through in a relationship, a messy relationship, because of misjudgment, disrespect, rejection, and uncertainty. And so we're trying to answer the question, what kinds of suffering might we have to endure for the good of our relationships, and even in good relationships, because we live in a fallen world? What kinds of suffering should we embrace gladly that we might love and glorify God? And so the first thing is the suffering of misjudgment, which I think is reflected in the first five verses. There's a story about a man who was driving home late one night, and he picked up a hitchhiker. And as they were driving along, he began to get a little suspicious of the hitchhiker. And he looked at his coat in between him and the hitchhiker, and he began to wonder... Um, if he had maybe stolen his wallet. And so he began to fumble around, and he could not find his wallet. And so he pulled over, and he, he said, get out. And then he said, give me that wallet. And the man was just shocked, and he gave him the wallet, and he drove off and drove home. And he gets out of the car, and he, he's talking to his wife, and he's about to tell his wife th- what happened. And she says, wait a minute, before you say anything, I don't want to forget, uh, you left your wallet at home, this morning, and I just wanted to let you know. So what happened in that story? That hitchhiker was terribly misjudged by this man who thought he had done something that he didn't do, and 
He thought he was a thief, and he wasn't, at least not in that situation. And so um, the whole issue of misjudgment, thinking we know things that we don't know, is what Paul is reflecting on in the first five verses. And in verse 1 it says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. You notice he starts off by saying, uh, let me tell you how you ought to be thinking about us. When he says, regard us, and he's talking about himself as an apostle and and those who are working with him and, and those who perform the role of preaching and teaching the word, because that was a big issue in the church there was, how do you look at uh, human teachers of the word? And some were saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul and I'm of Peter. And, and so there was this celebrity preacher thing going on in First Corinthians uh, at the church there. And, and so he said, let me tell you how you ought to be thinking about us. Don't think too um, highly of us and don't think too lowly of us. Uh, when he says, think um, in this manner, he's saying, or regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Serv- servant there, the word there means um, under rower. Somebody would be on the bottom row of a ship uh, rowing. A lowly, lowly kind of service, which means there's a sense in which um, Paul is saying, don't think too highly of us, lest you worship the man instead of worshiping God. But the other uh, phrase he uses is stewards of the mysteries of God. The idea of steward was a slave who managed uh, the master's property, property, including other slaves. And so he had a high position. He was still a slave, but he had a high position under the responsibility and authority of the master. And so there was a sense in which, because they were stewards of the mysteries of God, which means the gospel and the truth of God that God was revealing uh, through them, um, they were to be held in high esteem. So there's a balance there. They're to be not held too high, but high in a certain way because of the function that God intends to use them for. And so the believers in Corinth were not uh, holding uh, the preachers and teachers of the word in a proper perspective. Then he goes on to say, in this case, it is required that stewards be found trustworthy. He says, you know, the real issue here is whether or not, um, not whether or not somebody speaks well, but whether or not they're handling the word accurately. It's not whether or not they can wow you with their eloquent speech, which was a big thing in Corinth. You know, if they thought really highly, if you could turn a phrase and and wow people with your words and your story and your human wisdom. And he says the real issue is whether or not they're being faithful to God and faithful to his word. So he goes on to say, in light of all that, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. A very small thing. 
he's highlighting the fact that um, they're examining him, and they're examining him like a prosecuting attorney. It's a critical examination. It's a performance review, as Sean highlighted earlier. And they're passing verdict on Paul and saying, fail. You fail. You are not what you should be. You're not what we want you to be. We like these other guys better. And so Paul is addressing that. And Matthew Henry says about um, our t- all of our tendencies to do that sort of critical investigation, examination, interrogation. He says the best of men, notice the best of men, are too apt to judge rashly and harshly. It is a comfort that men are not to be our final judges. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. It is a very small thing what you think of me. Not because I don't love you, not because I'm not open to what you have to say, and not because we don't hold each other accountable, but if you're trying to render a final judgment upon me, you're out of bounds. You're doing something that you have no right to do. You're doing something that I have no right to do in terms of where you are. Um, Henry also says it is judging out of season, judging persons, future state, or the secret springs and principles of their actions. To judge in these cases is to assume the seed of God. So he's saying uh, there's a place for proper uh, evaluation where we're evaluating people's actions and evaluating their words, and we're appropriately evaluating that in in terms of what the Bible says and uh, admonishing one another, encouraging one another in light of that. That is a proper thing to do. But when we begin to say, um, this is what your future state will be in light of what I think about you, or, or when you begin to say, I know why you did that. I know your heart. I know your motivations. I know the unseen things. Truth is, only God knows their future state. Only God knows the unseen things, the motives of their hearts. And so we're assuming the seed of God when we do that. And so Paul is saying, um, in your pride, and that was a big issue in Corinth, in your pride, you were making final judgments, uh, final verdicts on me and on others. And that's why you're divided because you're making these final judgments and it's dividing you. It's not fostering love, but it's fostering division and conflict. And so the Lord encourages us to remember that, as it says, um, there is a day when everything's going to come to light. He says in verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. The time of what? The time of the final judgment. Leave that to God, because he says, wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, which um, points to things done that you don't know about, whether they're good or bad, things that we don't know. You look at somebody like Samson in the Bible, and it looks like everything he did was bad because of what God recorded. But he's in the hall of faith, which means... There are hidden good things that were about Samson that we don't know. And, and so the other side of the coin is just the same. We might think somebody looks really good, 
But then you find out the things that are going on in their life and you realize they're not as they appear. And so uh, God is going to bring to light all of that, whether it's good or it's bad. And And he says he will disclose the motives of men's heart. It's not just what people do, it's why they do it. Is it for their own glory? Is it for their own agenda? Or is it out of faith in God and his promises and wanting to love like he's called us to love? And he says, then each man's praise will come to him from God. So that we can be grateful when people encourage us and and, um, praise us in various ways. But ultimately, only God's praise is going to matter. I can have the applause of the world, but not have the approval of God. And if all the world rejects us and we still have the praise of God, that is infinitely better than the, the uh, former. And so Paul is encouraging us uh, to trust the promise that we have peace with God through Christ, that we are accepted by God because of Christ, um, that we will be ultimately um, received by God because of Christ. Even if we are rejected by men, we will not be rejected by God because of Jesus and what he's done for us as we trust him. And we need to remember that we're to leave the judgment to God. There's a phrase that the Lord Jesus uses several times in the Bible in different contexts. And that phrase is, many who are first will be last and the last first. And I believe the way it's used in Mark 10 in the context of the rich young ruler and the the disciples who are just shocked that it's going to be hard for rich people to get into heaven because they thought, well, if, if rich people who are blessed by God don't get in heaven, how can us poor people ever get in? And uh, Peter asked the question, we've left everything and followed you. What, what's going to be our future? And Jesus says, you know, if you've left all kinds of things to follow me, you will receive much more along with persecutions. And then he says, the first will be last and the last will be first. Now, I think in the context he means don't, Uh, think that your judgment of the rich and the poor, of the prosperous and the persecuted is God's final judgment. Because those who appear to be first will be last in the judgment, and those who appear to be last will be first in the judgment. Because it's God's judgment that will be ultimate. And so we need to trust God with that and be careful of assuming the seat of God, as Matthew Henry would say, in our relationships, because they weren't loving Paul. And they weren't loving Paul because they were giving in to the temptation to play judge, ultimate, final judge in that relationship. Secondly, in verses 6 through 10, we see uh, the suffering that Paul experienced, not only because of misjudgment, but because of disrespect. There's a story about Harry Truman, who was one of our former presidents, who received a letter from, uh, at the time, the leader of Saudi Arabia, who um, addressed him as your magnificence. And Harry Truman kind of chuckled at that when he read that before, you know, in front of his staff, said, you know, maybe that's what you guys ought to be calling me as his magnificence, magnificence or whatever. And, um, but he wrote a letter after that letter to the United Nations supporting the admission of 100,000 Jews into Palestine. The next time he received a letter from 
the leader of Saudi Arabia, it simply said, Dear Mr. President, he had dropped in respect. He had dropped in honor. That's exactly what we see happening here with the, the Apostle Paul. Initially, there was great respect for him. But then things changed because they began to dislike things about Paul or at least like things about others better in comparison to Paul. There's an ongoing issue with Paul where they said, you know, you just don't preach and speak like these other orators do. He just wasn't as flashy, wasn't as as um, polished maybe in certain ways as these other people And so they lost respect for Paul. And all of us know what it's like to feel disrespected. That's a kind of suffering that we all experience. It says in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor or respect. So Paul says, I've been talking to you about me and Apollos, and I've just been using us as a way of illustration to try to help you see the right way to think and the right way to act in light of different men that God uses in your life. And ministers the word to you. He says, uh, learn not to exceed what is written, which means learn not to exceed the Bible, the scripture, in whatever way you have it. And he says, be careful of being puffed up and think that you are different from other people because there's something special about you. He says, um, who regards you as superior or or what has put the difference between you and others? Now, they were greatly gifted. The church had a lot of different gifts, so it was easy for them to think, wow, we must be really special. We, we must be um, something because of what we have. And so that's why Calvin comments, and he says, the true basis of Christian humility is to recognize that if God is implanted good in us, we're all the more indebted to his grace. That as I look at my accomplishments and I look at my gifts, it should not result in me becoming more proud and boastful. It should result in me becoming more thankful and praise-filled, knowing that I am what I am by the grace of God. And the believers here were not seeing that, and they somehow believed that what they had was... Uh, because of something good in them. And what Paul was experiencing was because of what was bad in him. Because there's this theme of, Paul, you're going through a lot of suffering, and we got it pretty good here. And the natural response is, there must be something wrong with you, Paul. There must be something really wonderful about us. 
because we have it so good. Matthew Henry could say there's a general maxim that we need to keep in mind. We have no reason to be proud of our attainments or performances. All that we have or are or do that is good is owing to the rich and free grace of God. He says boasting is forever excluded. Those who receive all should be proud of nothing. If we receive everything, we should be proud of nothing. And that's the truth for all of us. It is truly the reality of the situation. And so Paul is encouraging them to be careful because they'd become, in a sense, delusional. Um, He says, you know, you guys have, in verse 8, you're already filled. You know, you have, you've kind of, you're, you're full as you can be. Um, he says that uh, you've already become rich. You have become kings without us. It's almost like um, heaven has already come to earth. Uh, the kingdom has already come at the church in Corinth. And they think that they've arrived in some sense. And he says, you know, there's just enough truth in there for you to twist Around, Because the reality is one day you will reign. If you're a true believer in Christ, you will reign with Christ. But the problem is you think you're already reigning. You think, you, you think somehow you're different from everybody else and you're different from me, Paul would say, and you're not reigning already. He says, in light of all the suffering I'm going through, I wish you were reigning because that would mean I was reigning because all those who believe in Jesus will one day reign with him. And so he rebukes their delusional idea of how great and wonderful they are compared to other people. And he, he says that God has exhibited us in verse 9, which is actually a, a reference to probably um, being like one of the participants in the, um, the arena, the Roman arena, where they would put gladiators in there to fight or, or put... Uh, other people that had been condemned to death for various reasons to fight and entertain the masses. He says there's a sense in which God, in his sovereign wisdom and mercy, has exhibited us like people in in an arena that have been condemned to death who are, in a sense, a spectacle. And he's probably alluding to the Corinthians who look at him and say, that poor Paul, he's like one of those people in the Roman arena, uh, condemned to die and probably worthy of it in some sense. But not like us up in the stands, having our popcorn and our Coke and having a great time. So he's, he's drawing a contrast there in light of his own experience. He says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Consider fools in the eyes of the world. We're not truly fools truly wise, but considered that way. He says in verse 10, you're prudent, you're strong, you're distinguished. He's not saying what is true of them. He's saying what they think of themselves and their pride in contrast to him. And he says that they're wrong. They're wrong in their judgment of themselves and they're wrong in their judgment of Paul. And he's just, again, highlighting the fact that we aren't able to fully Uh, judge other people or judge ourselves. And so Paul, in a sense, is reminding us to trust God's provision that regardless of whether or not we're in a prosperous state or in a place of being 
as if we were in the Roman Colosseum, God is going to meet our needs. We're standing in grace. He's going to uh, be there with us. He does be there for us. So Paul is not complaining about God exhibiting him as someone worthy of death. He's not complaining about that. He knows that he can trust God for whatever his circumstances are. But he's saying to the Corinthians, you are misjudging. You're misinterpreting what's going on here. And it's hindering you from loving each other and from loving me as well. Um, You might remember the story in the Old Testament of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he's judged by God, disciplined by God, because he walks out on his patio one evening and he looks around the city and he says, all of this is the result of what a great guy I am. And God humbles him. He says, no, all of this is because of what a great God I am. That's the truth. So look at your best days and your best gifts and your best responses to life and resist the temptation to say, what a great guy I am or a great girl I am. And instead say, what a great God God is. Because that is truly the reality of the situation. And that's what Paul wants them to see. Because thinking otherwise hinders us in our relationships with God and with each other. Well, the third kind of uh, suffering that Paul experienced was the suffering of outright rejection. Now, obviously, these other uh, things we've talked about are a part of that picture, but he talks um, in these next verses in a way that highlights that even more for us, I believe, and especially the idea of rejection by association. Uh, The interesting thing about um, what happened with John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated uh, President Lincoln, is that he had a brother who was a very famous actor. John Wilkes Booth was an actor too, but he wasn't nearly as famous and as accomplished as his brother was, who was actually Edwin Thomas Booth. And the result of John Wilkes Booth killing President Lincoln was that uh, the brother... Edwin Thomas Booth uh, was rejected. He could no longer act and do what he was doing. He was no longer celebrated as a great actor because he was associated with John Wilkes Booth and what he did. And so he was rejected by association. I want us to see that in this passage, uh, this next part of this chapter. In verse 11, he says... To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have become, excuse me, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. So Paul begins by saying, to this present hour. So he's, he's highlighting the fact that I'm not talking about what happened to me before I was a Christian. I'm not talking about what happened to me, you know, five years ago. I'm talking about what happens to me right now on a daily basis, to this very hour. 
He says, um, we are hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, and homeless. Now, homeless, that doesn't mean on the streets. That means with no settled abode, constantly moving around. So you don't have a permanent residence, which a lot of people prefer. But he says they lack material necessities. And why do they do that? Well, part of that is because of how he describes how people look at them. So it's because, in part at least, of their rejection by the world that they're experiencing what they experience. He says they're roughly treated, which is a is a picture of that word means to strike with the fist. Um, he says that they toil, which means to work to exhaustion, um, working with their own hands. The what, reason why that was an issue is that the Greeks despised all manual labor. If you worked with your hands, they thought, well, that's what slaves do. And so, Paul, you must not be any better than a slave. You not, must not be part of the elites like we are, because we don't do that sort of thing. Um, he says in verse 12 that we are reviled, which means to make fun of and make light of. It's sort of an indirect on somebody's character. But he says, but we, when we are reviled, speak well of the person, or we wish them well when they revile us. He says we're persecuted, which means to pursue our harm, but we endure, which means to hold up under and bear with that. He says we are slandered in verse 13, which is more of a bold and direct kind of attack on someone's character. And he says in response to that, we speak kindly when they're out to destroy us with their words. He says in verse 13, we're looked at like the scum of the world. And you can think of that in terms of the scum on your dishes that you clean off, what you clean out of your dishes after you've cooked and eaten. He says, we're like that stuff that you clean out and you throw in the trash. He says, we're like the dregs of all things, which is like what you scrape off the bottom of your shoes, whether it's gum or anything else, and get rid of. He says, that's the way we're looked at, and that's why we're rejected, because people make this judgment of us, and they believe that that's the way we deserve to be treated. And yet, Paul knows the truth, Like Matthew Henry said, those may be very dear to God and honorable in his esteem, whom men may think unworthy to live. So men are not to be trusted in terms of their verdicts on the lives of other men. God can love you dearly and everyone else can think you're scum. Paul says, that's why I think so little of what you think of me, because I think much more of what God says he thinks of me. So he says um, that he wasn't trying to um, bring them down a notch, but to encourage them and warn them for their own good. Um, he He talks about the fact that he loves them. He says that you might have plenty of tutors or people to care for you, but you can only have one father. Little James is only going to have one father. He might have plenty of teachers of various kinds in his life, but he's only going to have one Eric. And Paul is saying, it's only one person that God used through the preaching of the gospel to lead you to himself, and that's me. And he says, especially as an apostle, uh, as an apostle, therefore, 
why are you so quickly willing to jettison me uh, for these other uh, tutors? And so he's calling them to think about what they're doing and whether it's really the thing that they should be doing. And yet, as Calvin said, he's doing, he's reproving them, he's admonishing them, but he's doing it, as Calvin would say, with a friendly disposition. He says, don't ever try to correct someone without seeking to uh, encourage them that you have a friendly disposition toward them, that you really love them, that you're not just attacking them and trying to punish them or destroy them. You're truly seeking to love them. And he's encouraging them, as Henry would say, follow me as far as I follow Christ. That's what he's calling them to do. But in all of this, Paul is saying, um, I suffer your rejection. I suffer the rejection of others. But God has promised me the hope of glory. God has promised that one day I will be in his presence with fullness of joy. And I will enjoy pleasures at his right hand forever. Therefore, I can love you because I'm not looking to you for joy. I'm not looking to you for acceptance. I'm looking to God for that, and therefore I am free to love you in the way that God calls me to. And and Paul could say in Romans 5, we exult in our tribulations. Why? Because God uses it to grow us in Christ. And James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials meaning God intends our messy relationships to bring us joy. He intends our messy relationships to make us more like Christ. You know, in Genesis, when um, God tells Adam after he creates him, it's not good that man be alone. He's not talking about the fact that everybody ought to be married. The Lord Jesus wasn't married. What he's talking about is it's not good for you to be by yourself, just one person. You need to be in relationship with other people. And that continues even after the fall. You need to be in relationship with other people, even if they're they're messy relationships, because uh, God intends to bring you joy, even through the messy relationships, and to make you like Christ, even through the messy relationships. And that's why um, we see in these verses, verses 12, 13, and 16, where um, Paul didn't react, he responded. Uh, When they reviled, they blessed. When they were persecuted, they endured. When they were slandered, they spoke kindly. He didn't simply uh, respond in kind, but he responded kindly. He loved. And how do you do that? You You have to believe that God is going to take care of you, and you trust God for what he's promised, and you seek to do what God calls you to do which is meant to free us to love the person who's not loving us in return. And we see the Lord Jesus, I think, illustrating that for us on the night he was betrayed when he washes the disciples' feet. And the whole group of disciples were there at that point. At some point, Judas does leave that night. But he was there when Jesus washes every single disciple's feet. And... That means he washed the feet of his betrayer. It means he washed the feet of his denier, Peter, Judas and Peter. Then he washed everybody else's feet of those who would abandon him. They would all run away. All those who said, I'll be with you, Jesus. I ain't going anywhere. I don't care what happens. 
And at the first hint of threat, pain, suffering, they were gone. Let Jesus wash their feet. And he said, I washed your feet, which means you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Those were messy relationships. The relationship between Jesus and his disciples, they were continually not getting it. They were continually walking around saying, "Uh, which of us is the greatest? I think I am. What do you think? And they would do that when Jesus is talking about, I'm going to the cross and they're going to torture me and they're going to put me to death. And they hear that and they immediately go back to saying, I think I'm the greatest. Let me tell you why. It was a messy relationship with Jesus and his disciples. One betrayed him. One denied him. Even after saying, I'll never deny you. And the rest of them abandoned him. And then he says, follow my example. Don't react, respond. Love in your messy relationships. Then the last uh, section is 17 through 21, where Paul, in a sense, suffered in light of uncertainty. Um, There was an experiment uh, that some Dutch researchers did in which they told a group of people, one group of people, that they were going to receive 20 strong shocks. And then they told another group of people that they were going to receive only three strong shocks and 17 mild ones. They did not tell them when those three strong shocks were going to come. They monitored each group's Um, blood pressure and anxiety level and everything else. And the ones who knew that they were going to get 20 strong shocks did better than the ones who were only going to get three strong shocks but did not know when they were going to come. And they came to the conclusion that it was the uncertainty that caused their discomfort, not the intensity of the shocks. There's a sense in which uncertainty in our relationships causes suffering not simply the difficulty of the relationship. And we see that reflected, I think, in this passage. In verse 17, he says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So first of all, uh, Paul says, I'm going to send you Timothy, because I can't come right away, but I will come. He's going to come first, and he's going to be an example of someone who's Um, embraced my uh, role of father in his life and he will show you how you're to live out the Christian life Um, because you need to be reminded of some things. He's going to help you remember the things that I've taught you, the things that I've taught in every church. So I'm not expecting something of you that I don't expect of other believers. And he says, um, I will come if the Lord wills and we'll see because God is will ultimately determine when and if I am able to get back to you. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out what's really going on here and what's being said and what is actually the fruit of what's going on. Those who are speaking the truth and 
are actually living like Christ calls us to live and those who are just being eloquent and throwing out fluff and lies and worldly wisdom and just causing division and heartache and a lack of loving response. And he says that to them, he asks the question, what do you desire? Which raises the question of what will Paul find when he comes? He's calling them to repentance. When he says, do you want me to come with a rod? Do you want me to come ready to exercise an appropriate authority as an apostle and discipline you as as an apostle representing Christ in light of your unwillingness to repent? Or do you want me to be able to come uh, and rejoicing you as your father, your spiritual father, and come with tenderness and love? Now, when you read that, you might think, so is Paul saying, do you want me to come and beat you up? Or you want me to come and, you know, celebrate you? Well, what he's, he's not contrasting hatred and love there. He's not saying, do you want me to come violently and in hatred? Or do you want me to come in love and tenderness? No, he's saying, depending on your response to what you're hearing here and the call to repentance from Christ through me, it's going to determine how I love you. A good parent is going to use the rod, going to use discipline, going to use consequences to love their child. But if the child is embracing what the father says to do, you don't have to use that rod. The love doesn't change, but how that love manifests itself does change. That's why Matthew Henry could say, Christian love and compassion will sometimes force the use of the rod. Um, Another man says, if Paul comes armed with a rod, he will nevertheless come in love, for love must sometimes wield a rod. Calvin says the chastisement proceeds from love, but he says a father always regards his son with affection and obviously would rather teach him pleasantly and tenderly or in in love. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, and he's talking about um, another visit. So not the one that's referenced in 1 Corinthians, but about another visit. There's a visit between 1 and 2 Corinthians that did not go well. Paul went to see them, and they basically said, we're not going to listen to you because we're going to listen to these other guys. And he was humiliated. And Paul in 2 Corinthians says this, I'm coming back. And he says, when I come back, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogant disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. That's the suffering of uncertainty. I'm not really sure what's going to happen when I come back. I'm not sure if you're going to listen to my exhortation and welcome me back, or when, we're going to, or when I come back, you're going to reject God's word through me, and you're going to attack me. That's suffering. In relationships, we don't know how people are going to respond to us. We don't know, especially when we're trying to deal with hard things, how they're going to respond. And yet, God encourages us to trust His promise that He's loving us perfectly and that He will uh, work things together for our good. And therefore, we're to seek to love people in light of what they need, not in light of what they want. 
If they need the rod, then we lovingly apply the rod, so to speak. If they need tender encouragement, then we do that. That's why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Not everybody needs the same response, but everybody needs to be uh, lovingly and patiently dealt with. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. Let me just wrap all this up. Again, we come back to the gospel. And the last point of the gospel is for to love uh, as an obedience of faith. And it's important that we realize that in order to do that, we need to embrace the principle that we find in Proverbs 14. In Proverbs 14, it says, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but increase comes by the strength of an ox. What is the point of that? point of that is if you don't have any oxen in your stall you can keep it really nice it won't be messy if you don't have any young kids in your home you can keep it really nice it won't be messy if you don't get married you can keep your house really nice if you do get married you might have your husband's stuff on the floor Um, you can go live in a desert place all by yourself, and you don't have to be bothered with people that are cutting you off on the freeway and people who are working right next to you and they're, they're irritating you by failing to do what they should do. Um, just put yourself in any kind of relationship. It's going to be messy to one degree or another. And yet the point of this is there's much increase that comes by the messiness of that relationship with the ox. Um, my life would be totally different without my wife and my children. There's some messiness about our home and our life as a result of that, but I would be greatly impoverished without them. I am so thankful for my wife and my children. There are a lot of people that look at the church and you say, why would you ever want to be a part of a, a bunch like that? because there's much increase that comes through being a part of a bunch like that. Messy relationships, difficult relationships, relationships in which there's suffering, there's disappointment, there's failure, and yet there's much increase, there's much good, there's much value in those relationships. And so Paul could say, I love you, and I'm in this for the long haul. Yes, you cause me a lot of suffering, but the increase from it, is great for me and for you and ultimately for the glory of God. And so I'm thankful for our messy relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would encourage us in our own efforts and desires to love well in our relationships. Help us to see them as they are in their messiness and yet help us to see beyond them to what you say is actually true about them and what the benefit of them will be in our lives and help it as a result of our faith and what you say. May it free us more and more to love faithfully and diligently and gladly. And may you do great and wonderful things in and through our relationships. Please prepare our hearts now to receive your um, Lord's Supper and the celebration of it.
please prepare our hearts. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.